Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Parshas Mishpatim, and that's uh, that's a, it's a very interesting Parsha because it's 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 coming right after the receiving of the Torah. So that happens, um, of course, in Parshas Yisro. So so we were all at Mount Sinai and we get the Torah. And I heard from uh, I heard from Reb Shlomo uh, that after we got the Torah, we returned back to our tents, we made kiddush, and we started learning the first law of Parshas Mishpatim, which is the next Parsha in the Torah, which is the law of the Hebrew slaves. And that in itself is, is very striking because everyone's asking the question, you know, of all the things to learn once you've gotten the Torah, you know, heaven has come down to earth, and now all of a sudden you're learning this incredibly sort of technical case and, and something that um, is very hard for us in present day to, to relate to, until we um, understand it better anyway which is, what was this whole um, institution of, of slavery in the Torah? Um, so it's very different from, from what we understand in secular history and certainly in um, American history as, as slavery. Um, and and it, it's, it's interesting because the rabbis teach that one who took on a slave took on a master, meaning to say that the laws were so exacting in terms of the proper treatment of a slave that that it was almost as though you were taking on a master. And I'll give you two examples. One is, if there was only one pillow in the household, the master had to give it to the slave. I'll give you another example. Whatever food, in terms of the quality of food that the master was eating, the slave also had to eat. So from here you see that the whole institution of slavery, as it's described in the Torah, is a whole other order. It was more like a place of rehabilitation for a person. So who was this slave to begin with? And it was often someone who either stole or who owed money and who was now in an environment where he was able to work off his debt or pay back his debt. So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar something very interesting. And this is going to get us back to a, a, an answer for our initial question, which is, the whole Torah has been given, we go back to our tents, we make Kiddush, and we're learning the, the laws of the Hebrew slave. Like, what's, what's the connection? So the Zohar says that when Adam and Chava, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, they ate without permission. So that that was actually an act of theft that went on. And the whole concept of the Hebrew slave is someone who's now learning how to work off their debt, usually from an item that was stolen. So in other words, now that we have the Torah, we're able to go back and we're rectifying all the initial wrongs all the way back to the Garden of Eden in terms of the rectification of the entire world. I also heard from Rup Shlomo in the name of the Baal Shem Tov um, that the real, the real test of whether or not you received the Torah or not, right, is how are you dealing with, how are you treating someone who you have power over. See, that's the whole dynamic of the, of the Hebrew slave. In other words, there's the, the master and the slave. There's someone who is in a position of power, and there's the, there's the other person. And how are you, now that you have the Torah, now that you have insight into the proper way to treat another human being, here's the test. So again, the test of whether or not you receive the Torah or not, 
That's why the first halacha, the first law is, is the law of the Hebrew slave. How are you going to use this Torah, this enlightenment that you've received in order and to inform your relationships like this? To uplift someone who's in a weaker position than you. Okay. Now there, there are many, many, many halachas in, in Parsha's Mishpatim. Um, before we begin, though, I want to I point out something. It's a famous thing Rashi points it out, and all the, all the Kabbalists point it out, which is the fact that the, the Parshas Mishpatim begins with the letter Vav. Everybody knows that the letter Vav is, 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 a, is a connection. In, in Hebrew grammar, Vav means and or or, which means that it's tying together two, two phrases. So, so Vav is a connector. And we know in terms of sort of the arrangement of heaven and earth, you know, we always, whenever we're talking about the name of Hashem, we always want to, like a ladder, start from the, the Yud on high, and then beneath that's the He, and then the letter Vav, and then the letter He. And, of course, He, the bottom He stands for this world. But you see that Vav, in this context of the Yud K Vav K, Vav is also a connection between heaven and earth. So Vav is, 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 is a very very wondrous letter, and, and there's, you know, just libraries and libraries and oceans of Torahs just on the letter Vav throughout the Torah. Anyway, it's very, it's very appropriate, very exact, really, that, that Parshas Mishpatim should begin with the letter Vav. And, and Rashi, Rashi, who's, you know, always dealing with the Pshat, just on the most basic level, is addressing in his opening comment why this Parsha begins with the letter Vav. So this is a, a famous observation about the Torah, this Vav. So, so one, one teaching that, that, I, that I learned, that, that I like, that made a big impression on me, I, I, I don't know who I learned it from, but which is that a lot of Parsha's Mishpatim are dealing, and we're going to get into some of them as well, are dealing with sort of like um, civil laws, meaning to say a lot of the, um, you know, there, there are many ways to divide up and organize the mitzvot in the Torah. One way is what we call um, Adam le Chavero, which means person to person, a person and their, their, their co-human being. <laughs> and then you have the Adam le Makom, a, a person and God. So you have your, like, say, keeping Shabbos, that would be a person to God related thing, not stealing, would, would be a, or don't murder would be a person-to-person thing, right? Um, so, so all of these civil laws, which get into the nitty-gritty of interhuman relationships, right? A lot of those things seem um, perhaps more mundane or more bureaucratic or less spectacular. But, but don't make that mistake. The, the vav that is introducing all of these laws is to bring you back to the fire and the thunder and the lightning of Mount Sinai. In other words, all of these, this whole category of laws, all of the mitzvot that we're learning in Parshas Mishpatim are being introduced with this letter vav, which is the connector, to connect you right back to the, to the pyrotechnics of Mount Sinai. In other words, all of these things emanate from the divine. A lot of people stumble over what they feel um, 
you know, especially when people start out learning and, 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 and want to grow in, in, in Torah and in mitzvot, so a lot of times people have a, a chip on their shoulder and they go, well, that thing that you're telling me, is that in the Torah? Is that from the rabbis? Right? So they, you know, right? They, 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 and they think they're being geniuses, right? With this, like, unbelievable question, right? Well, it's important to, for your own learning to, to track the things because sometimes there's a contest in the moment. You have two obligations that arise in the moment and you have to know which is the priority of the two. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So in that case, it's very helpful to know this is uh, Der Raisa, this is right from the Torah, this is from the rabbi. So the Der Raisa, the thing that's right from the Torah, would have precedence in that situation if you can only do one or if you have to prioritize. So it's, it's helpful for a person to know. But, but a lot of times the question is coming from the um, desire to dismiss that which isn't coming from Mount Sinai itself or the perception that it's not coming from Mount Sinai itself. So that's why this Vav is here also. This Vav is there to connect you from Mount Sinai to the divine flow, to the divine conversation that's never stopped because the voice from Mount Sinai has never stopped. Remember, we talked about it last week. I thought it was, I mean, it sort of struck me, which was the teaching that we say, the, the Medrash says that there was no echo at Mount Sinai, meaning to say when God spoke, there was no echo. And we, we gave the explanation from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is that the, the, the physics of an echo is that the sound waves bounce off of something that it's not, right? Like if you're, you know, on a cliff and your, your sound waves would bounce off like the, the rock formation of the mountain, and then you hear the sound again. So that's how the, that's, that's the physics of an echo. But at Mount Sinai, there was no echo because there is nothing that isn't an aspect of God. So there was nothing for God's voice to bounce off of because there's nothing other than God in the world. So that's why the voice just kept on going and going and going. And we know it says in Per Keavos, it says in the Torah itself, that the voice from Mount Sinai has never stopped. So if we extend that idea, in other words, it didn't bounce off of time or space either. In other, words, in other words, you would say, okay, so then the voice didn't stop because then and there, there is nothing other than God. At Mount Sinai, at that moment when God spoke, there was nothing other than godliness. But there's still nothing other than godliness. So what, is, what are the voice waves going to bounce off of? Not time. That's just another aspect of godliness. Not space. That's just another aspect of godliness. And so just like it didn't echo at that moment, the voice still continues because there's nothing to stop the voice because even time and space are aspects of Hashem. So the voice has continued to this moment. And that's the divine flow, that's the Ruach HaKodesh that we say, that comes to our greatest, purest, holiest Rebbeim. Right? And, that's, and those manifest themselves as what we call Dirabanans. Right? Those, that, that is the ongoing conversation, the ongoing explanation of the Torah, which is still coming down into the world. But it comes down through our holiest, purest vessels, which are the, the heads of the generation, the Gadoli Hador, the chief rabbis. And this is for the generation. So, so you have to understand that that divine flow hasn't stopped.
and that if if it's Torah, then then it th- this distinction doesn't matter. Is it deraisa or derabanan? That the all in fact the Ramban makes it utterly clear. We have a Torah mitzvah, so a deraisa, a Torah mitzvah, one of the six thirteen. Listen to the judges of the day, which are the rabbis of the day. So in other words, every derabanan is a deraisa. Because it's a it's a Torah commandment to listen to the rabbis. So when the rabbis tell you what to do in that situation, that becomes a Torah commandment. Because the Torah commands us to listen to the rabbis. So you understand how every derabanan is a deraisa. Okay. Again, we also have to give our time ourselves time to grow and to absorb all this and to progress in an orderly way, in a way that doesn't max ourselves out and everything else. So, you know, we have to be normal about it, right? As we always say, the word halacha, which is, you know, that's the, our, our, our divine actions in this world, can, the root is the word holech, to walk, right? Walk, don't run. You take it a step at a time. Okay. So now, we talked about different, different aspects of the vav. I want to tell you something from the Rav Yitzhak Isaac something getting a little even deeper, perhaps, than what we've said up until now. So, so the Vav, the Vav Rashi brings, is, is telling us also that the Sanhedrin sat at the location of the Beis HaMikdash. Okay? So the, 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 the top cases were being decided right in the place where all the offerings were being brought as well. Now, the way I had learned that up until now, well, I hadn't really thought about it that much. I mean, I thought, okay, well, the rabbis are there too, so that's, I guess, they have to open up their offices someplace, right? So why not the Beis HaMikdash? That's a, that's a good spot for them. I hadn't really thought about it, really. Or... It makes sense since you'd want them in the holiest place, right? These are all terrible answers, by the way. So, so but I'm just telling you, I hadn't really considered the the the, the depth the depth of this idea of what is the Sanhedrin doing at the Beis Hamikdash. The Sanhedrin, of course, are the the people who are, you know, deciding the halacha, like you know, explaining the halacha in the highest way. What is going on? Why this juxtaposition? And why is the letter Vav telling us this, right? Because Rashi tells us the letter Vav at the beginning of Mishpatim is telling us that the location of the Sanhedrin is next to, remember Vav is the connector, is connecting the location of the Sanhedrin and the place where we bring the offering. So we know that the Beis Hamikdash was basically the connection between heaven and earth. It was the portal between heaven and earth. And that this was the main place where the Torah was flowing into the world. Because this is the connection between heaven and earth. So when you understand it now, this is the way Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver in the Or Torah is explaining it. He is doing a whole 180 on you. He's flipping the whole framing. It's not, he's saying something very amazing here. It's not that the place where we brought our offering... Right, which was you know rising up to heaven and was basically bringing atonement and 
thanks and all sorts of like amazing stuff to the world, that that would be an appropriate place also to decide Torah. Like that would be a good headquarters for the top rabbis of the generation. He's not saying that. He's saying that that is where Torah, that portal was where Torah was flowing into this world. That's why the rabbis were situated there. And as long as that's where Torah is flowing into the world, that is the most appropriate place to bring the offerings so that they should ascend. So in other words, now you hear that the primary aspect of the location of the Besa Migdash was chosen because that was the portal through which Torah is flowing into the world. That's why the rabbis were there. Then also it makes sense that that would be the place where we're also bringing our offerings. But that the primary aspect is that is where the primary flow of Torah is coming into the world. Okay. Now, there's a whole discussion about in the Gomorrah about all the mitzvahs here. There's something like 54 mitzvahs here in this one parsha, which is very appropriate. Like we get the Torah. Right? We just got the Ten Commandments, which contains the whole Torah, and now you have this cluster, this explosion of mitzvot, this huge blossoming of mitzvot immediately right after. Right? So it's very beautiful. And again, we, we, we talked about how mostly they're, they're dealing with person-to-person type mitzvahs. Now there's something, um, there's an example that I think is, is really uh, great here, and it gives us a lot of insight into human nature. So the Torah is telling you the following. That if you see, here this is, a, uh, so this is Shmos, Exodus, chapter 23, um, verse 5. So I'll read it in English. If you see the donkey of someone you hate crouching under its burden, would you refrain from helping him? You shall help repeatedly with him. Okay? So, so that's the mitzvah. Now, the Gemara is going to come and it's, a, it, it's going to discuss this, right? This is in Baba Metziah, 32b, 33a. So, they talk about the following situation. You have two people. One of them is loading his donkey and the other one is unloading his donkey. All right? Now, remember, just, just so that we can appreciate this, like... This was, this was like very common in the day. Like, like we don't see this so much anymore. But, but this was the main way that people transported things. We didn't have any trucks or cars. And on a horse, you don't really load a horse down with stuff. Like this is, you know, donkeys are called beasts of burden, things like that. Like that's what, they were like the, the transporters of stuff. So people loading and unloading donkeys was like a very common occurrence, Okay. So you have two situations. You have someone who's loading up a donkey and someone who's unloading a donkey next to each other, right? Who do you help first? And you have a mitzvah. The Torah is telling you you have a mitzvah to help them out. So who do you help first? The one who's loading up his donkey or the one who's unloading his donkey? And the answer is you help out the one who's unloading his donkey first. And the reason is, and again, you, you, see, you hear the divinity 
And the beauty of the Torah and the sensitivity of the Torah here, because the donkey who has a big burden on him is suffering under the weight of his burden. So, so you want to relieve him of his pain before you start putting the packages on the other donkey, right? So, again, if you have two things going on at the same time, one person needs to load their donkey, the other one needs to unload their donkey. Look at this, the subtlety here, but the subtlety here is the beauty of it, is, do you hear, we didn't say, who's in the bigger hurry? Right? We could have asked, who's in the bigger hurry? In other words, we could have been approaching this problem from the perspective of the person, but we're not approaching it from the perspective of the person. We're, we're approaching it from a sensitivity of the animal who might be suffering at that moment. Th that in itself is, is very, very divine, very beautiful. Okay, so we get rid of the suffering of the animal under the heavy burden first. Okay? Okay, now listen to this. It it's going to go further. What if you have um, your friend is unloading his donkey and your enemy is loading his donkey at the same time? Okay, say it again. Your friend is unloading his donkey. What did we just say? That the one who's unloading gets priority, right? And he's your friend. And you have your enemy who's loading his donkey. So there's two reasons why that person should go second. Right? Because one, he's, <laughs> one, he's, he's loading his donkey. Right? So that's, you always want to be more sensitive to the one who has the burden. You want to remove the burden and unload the donkey first. And he's your enemy. You don't want to help him at all. <laughs> So the Torah tells you in that situation, you have to help your enemy load his donkey first before you would help your friend unload his donkey. Now, listen to the thinking behind this, because this is, this is really great. And we're going to start with one thing and then hopefully go deeper. You see, a lot of times, and the Gomorrah does this a lot, they, they like to put two mitzvahs in front of you and they say, if you have the choice between this mitzvah and this mitzvah, which one do you first? Do you do first? And you've got like all sorts of very interesting things. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, if the Kohen Gadol, right? The high priest of Israel, right? His, his, what's his big day? Yom Kippur. I mean, he's busy all year, but his big, big day is Yom Kippur. He's the only one who can go into the Holy of Holies, Right? And, and as, as the Sefer Yetzirah says, you can boil down all of reality to time, space, and soul. What's the holiest time? Yom Kippur. What's the holiest space? The Holy of Holies. What's the holiest soul? The High Priest. And all three are coming together at the same moment on Yom Kippur. Okay? So you have the High Priest, the Kohen Gadol, is on Yom Kippur, is heading toward the base of Migdash, and he sees what's called a mace mitzvah. A mace mitzvah is a dead person lying along the side of a road and no one buried him. Right? Just some stranger who was traveling. No one knows who he is. Maybe just no one saw him since he died. 
He's just laying there, dead body. So what is the priority of the Kohen Gadol at that moment? To like, do this incredible intersection of time, space, and soul? Or to bury this poor guy, right? And contract what's called Tumas Mace, right? That's a ritual impurity that comes from being in contact with the dead, which would invalidate him from serving as the Kohen Gadol. Now you should know that there was always an assistant, like someone ready, if, if for some reason the Kohen Gadol became uh, ritually impure, there was always a number two standing by who could take his place. So the answer is, the Mace Mitzvah takes priority. He would have to become ritually impure, bury the dead person, because that is the mitzvah of the moment right then and there. Right? So again, this is just one, and then the person who was the understudy, so to speak, who is standing by, would then take over and be the Kohen Gadol for that Yom Kippur. Um, again, you see the, the sensitivity of what it means just to uplift a, a, the person next to you. Right? Just how, how the, the greatness of that. The greatness of that. And also, the importance of the moment. Right? Like, the, um, someone asked the, the Shin of a Rebbe, the son of the Sons of Rebbe, what was the most important mitzvah for your father? Right? And the, the, the Sons of Rebbe, the, the Divrei Chaim, was one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And the Shin of a Rebbe said, whatever mitzvah my father was doing at the time was the most important mitzvah for him. Right? So that's, that's being in the moment and everything like this. So let's return back to our situation. So we've got the person's enemy <laughs> is loading the donkey. And, and, and that person takes priority. That person takes priority. So why? Because we just said that unloading the donkey, relieving of its suffering should take priority over loading a donkey. So, but the Gomorrah is now going to hit you with something else, right? Or, um, or maybe it was one of the rabbis and it's lumped into, he's explaining the Gomorrah, I'm not sure. But, but he's going to hit you with something else, which is that, wait a second, there's a third mitzvah going on at this moment. You know? A new mitzvah is entering stage left, right? We thought we had the whole picture. It was just between these two people. But now there's a third mitzvah here, which is don't hate your enemy. Don't hate a fellow Jew. You can't hate a fellow Jew. And here is someone who you hate. So now you have an opportunity to work on your hatred of your fellow Jew. Now, now, there's an obvious question in here, which is that if it says that you're not allowed to hate your fellow Jew, how are they talking about a situation where a person is hating this guy if he's his fellow Jew? And the answer is, is that there's a certain category of people who are like really doing the wrong thing, like way into the wrong thing, and have been repeatedly warned don't do this. And they do it anyway. So in that situation, there are allowances to sort of like 
to quote-unquote hate. But we have to understand what the word hate means. Because the Torah is saying that even someone who's fallen to that low level, even someone who, technically speaking, you're allowed to quote-unquote hate, he's doing horrible things. He's been repeatedly warned not to do these things. In this situation, you can't hate him. Not only can't you hate him, but you've got to get it over, you've got to overcome your hatred of him. And what is the way to overcome your hatred of him? By doing something nice for him. So this is now getting into sort of the shadier, darker corners of our hearts. And it touches on one of the big um, secrets of maintaining love relationships and friendships and everything like this in general, which is that if you, most people feel as though, like, um, if, 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 if you want me to like you more, do something for me, right? So, um, so the rabbis teach us that the act of giving actually stimulates your love for the other person. So that if you actually want to increase your love for another person, by giving to that other person, you will increase your love for them. And that's something that's very counterintuitive. Because mostly we just think of, um, like, like probably in secular society, I think maybe, maybe a good example for this is Valentine's Day, right? If you want, it, because Valentine's Day is all about love and romance and everything like that, and what is the model for trying to win over the affections of someone else? Give them flowers, give them candy, give them jewelry, and then you will arouse this love in, in the other person, right? But can you imagine if the whole Valentine's Day is that, no, you know, don't, that's not going to win them over. If there's someone like, like Valentine's Day for the people you hate. <laughs> Today is the day to give gifts and do favors for the people you hate. <laughs> and that will evoke a love in you. See, you know, I think that sometimes when, when um, like couples start to get together, and they have their sort of honeymoon period, you know, like I'm saying, even before they actually get married, like the first, you know, blossoming of the relationship. Um, and when people sort of like, and then that starts to go away, you know, oftentimes. And you think back, and most people's memory of that period is, oh, the other person was so nice to me. They did so many things for me. But the part that they forget is, during that period, they were being so nice to the other person, and they were doing so many things for the other person. Right? And then, something changes, and then people just naturally shift back into the other direction, because it's human nature of, what have you done for me lately? Right? Instead of continuing that giving. So the Torah is telling you, that if you have two people, one who's your friend, who's loading, 
the, or unloading, rather, unloading the donkey, right? Double priority. And one who's your enemy, who's loading the donkey, help your enemy. Because that is going to evoke something in you where you are going to overcome this feeling of hatred for your fellow Jew, and you're going to be able to keep an even bigger mitzvah than loading or unloading donkeys altogether. Because this is about, really, you know, the essence of Jewish unity. Avas Yisrael, which is unity and, and loving each other. Okay, now I want to say something else, which to me, I don't know if it's deeper, but to me, maybe. Again, you've got your friend who's unloading the donkey, and you've got your enemy who's loading the donkey. So for two reasons, that person shouldn't get priority. One, because they're loading the donkey, and two, because they're your enemy. Right? And yet you're supposed to help them. Because they're your enemy. So that's two reasons why you shouldn't be, don't want to help them. The Torah tells you, no, you should, you should help them anyway. Okay. Now, here's where it's like, here's I think a, a maybe a very, a, a very sort of like, sneaky trick that the Yetzirah plays on us. And something that if we really want to grow in levels of refinement and purity, we have to be aware of this idea. You see, sometimes we have a Torah cover which allows us to appear to be doing the right thing, where really our keeping the Torah at that moment is just an excuse because we really don't want to do the thing itself. You see, like, I'll give you an example. Imagine you're walking down a a street and there's a shady-looking character who's collecting tzedakah. And you say to yourself, oh, um, I know he's just going to use it for drugs, right? So I'm not going to give it to him. And by the way, that might be a very good reason not to give tzedakah to a person, okay? So that, that could actually be a very legitimate reason, and you perhaps shouldn't give to that person at that moment. But just hear me out for a moment. Let's say it's not so clear. Let's say it's not so clear. And you say, oh, he's probably just going to use it for drugs, so therefore I'm going to do the Torah thing and not give him the money. Right? But what if, deep, deep down, if you were to take an x-ray of your heart, the reason is, is, my money is my money, let him get a job. <laughs> I just don't want to give him the money because I don't want to give him the money because I, I don't want to part with my own money in this situation. This is, this is really the shadowy realm that we're talking about with loading and unloading the donkeys. Where a person has an ostensible excuse and a Torah model for not doing a particular action that they can hide behind. But really deep down, it's just that they just don't want to do it. 
So listen to what the Torah is telling you. They're telling you, you know something? You're right. Oh, you're learning Talmud so well. I'm so impressed. The one who has to unload the donkey takes priority over the one who has to load the donkey. Oh, you were learning Baba Metziah. Oh, you're such a tzaddik. But the reason why I'm not helping that other guy is because I hate his guts. I hate his guts. And I'm hiding behind this learning. But really what's going on in my heart is I hate his guts. And the Torah is ripping off, ripping off that excuse, tearing it away and saying, he's your enemy, you got to help him. Because you can't hate that guy. You're not allowed to hate that guy. you got to help him. And don't give me this thing that this donkey is, is suffering and you learned it, you know, you know, in Panovich or whatever it is, you know, because you're so great. You're hiding, you're hiding behind the Torah and not doing the right thing. So that, that's already getting deeper. Now let's take another step. So the Kutzker Rebbe says, on these words, would you refrain from helping him? So the Torah says, you know something? And the Kutzker Rebbe makes it very, very clear. He's got to be trying to help himself. Because... Your obligation only kicks in if he himself is trying to help himself out. It doesn't say do it for him. It says that you have to help him. Bless you. Meaning to say that that person you see is actually engaged in making an effort. If you see that the person is not making an effort themselves, you don't have that obligation to help. that the person themselves has to actually be trying. Then your obligation kicks in as well. Right? So, a lot of the beginning point of that is that a lot of people don't even know that they have to be working at a certain thing. And, you know... I, I, I heard this phrase not, not long ago, and it really stayed with me. And I, I didn't even realize there was a, a word for this. I thought it was just sort of normal. But I don't know if it is normal. And it's called lifetime learning. Um, some people think they get out of school, and then their, their obligation to learn is over. And then there are other people who are just naturally curious, so they just naturally learn. But there's... There's a way of going through life where you stay a student for the rest of your life. And this is like a fantastic way to go through life. Everyone should go through life like this, with lifetime learning, where you never stop reading books, you never stop trying to grow, you never stop trying to learn. It's awesome. You know, I just, I just learned something. I shared it over Shabbos. I, I love it. I love this. Which is that I read that in the Netherlands... They're training eagles to bring down drones. Like, to me, it's like, I see this like as this like epic battle between nature and technology, right? 
Like, and how do you train an eagle to take down a drone? <laughs> right? Like, can you imagine harnessing, like, like do you know that, that um, I, the Arabs have accused Israel, Israel's dolphins, of spying on them? <laughs> this is, you can, you can Google this. Dolphin Israel spy. You can Google that and you'll see. You'll read all about how they say that the, the dolphins are spying on us. And you know what they, for all I know, they may be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they attach sensors to them and whatnot, teach them to... I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of harnessing nature in this high-tech warfare type of way. Seems very, very compelling. But anyway, there, there are all sorts of things to learn. We will never stop learning. And this is in the information age that we're in right now, the opportunities to learn. My, my, my son right now, I don't know if I should be proud of this. It's, there's definitely a downside to this. But during the classes that he doesn't like in high school right now, he's learning Spanish online <laughs> during his classes. <laughs> you can teach yourself foreign languages online now. And they've got bars to tell you what percent fluent you are. And apparently some of these things, I, and, and you can learn... Apparently, and he comes home and he tells me the new things in Spanish that he knows and verbs and nouns and things like that and speaking <laughs> sentences. And this is... Well, other courses are going on, unfortunately. But anyway, I mean, during your downtime, you can be learning a foreign language in apparently a, a, a fairly direct, pretty, like, easy way. So anyway, that's just, just one thing to think about. Also, they say that this stops Alzheimer's. You know, that if you can constantly reroute your mind and, and, and you, know, you know, carve new pathways for your thoughts. I'm, I know I'm not putting it in the, you know, the, the, the uh, neuro, neuro pathways, yeah, um, the most scientific way, but, but, but this actually keeps the brain very active and, and functioning in a, in, in a wonderful way. So, okay, I want to change the subject, so let's just recap, and we're going to talk about something new right now, but let's just recap, which is the idea that, that, that the Yetzirah is, is very, very tricky. And the, the, the Yetzirah will sometimes even give you what seems like an authentic Torah reason not to do something. Where the reality is, is that under that situation you should do it, and you're just hiding behind the thing because you don't want to do it. You know? Um, so a person would have to really figure out how this applies to themselves and the situations that they're in, right? But, um, but, but uh, you should just be aware of the idea. All right. So now I want to switch subjects, and I want to talk about the letter Yud for a moment. <laughs> the letter Yud is like this fantastic, fantastic letter. And, um, you know, we have it at the beginning of Parshas Yisro, when the Torah itself is being given, that the Parshas Yisro begins with the letter Yud. And that's interesting because Yud is the number 10. And what happens when the Torah is being given? The Ten Commandments are being said, right? The Yisro Sedibros, right? So, so it's, it's so striking that you've got the letter Yud right there. Also, the letter Yud is very wondrous also because it's the only letter of the Aleph base that floats. 
It's the most spiritual letter. You know, it's off the ground. It's 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 like really wonderful in that way. And I, I, I said it another way one time at Yom Kippur that of all the Torah holidays, the only one that begins with the letter Yud is Yom Kippur. And what happens on Yom Kippur? We don't eat and all the different things, don't drink and everything like this. So we're like angels. So we ourselves are are like floating off the ground, right? We're like the, the Yud of Yom Kippur. In fact, a, a, a Jew is called a Yid, right? That's what they called them in, in, the, in the old days, a Yid, Yidin, right? Which means really, on some level, the letter Yud, right? Because we have this, this quality as well. And when they talk about in Hasidus, the, the, the quality within each person's soul that can never be tainted, no matter how far away a person gets, they call it the Pintala Yid, the little Yud inside you, that, that spark of unquenchable holiness. So all of this is, is, is contained within the letter Yud, and more. In fact, my favorite bit of imagery from this past Yom Kippur was that the Yud is like, you know when um, a rocket takes off, and like the bottom part of the rocket falls off, and then the next stage of the rocket falls off, and you just have that capsule, like, like just speeding through like the stratosphere, that's like the letter Yud. So the letter Yud of Yom Kippur, that's like this, the capsule of the rocket that's just speeding through the heavens, right? That's, that's what it is. So, so anyway, it says, it says that God created the heavens and the earth with the letters Yud and He. That's in Gomorrah Menachos 29b. Right? Classic, classic Gomorrah. So, so this world is compared to the leather hay, and Olam Abba, the next world, is, is, was created with the letter Yud. <clears throat> now, one bit of clarification is when it says that this world was created with the letter hay, it means heaven and earth were created with the letter hay. And Yud means the future time when the dead are going to be resurrected. Okay? So it's not referring to heaven, because heaven and earth are one unit. That was created with the letter He. When it talks about the letter Yud is Olam Haba, the world to come, it's talking about the world where the, where the world itself will become spiritualized. Okay? Now, listen to more. We're going to get back to this, but listen to more on the letter Yud. Interestingly, the letter Yud, remember we're saying it's very spiritual. The letter Yud in, in Hebrew grammar turns a word into the future tense. And Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says that the letter Yud is really stands for spirituality itself because the future really only exists in your mind. Now, let's just, we understand that God has the past, the present, and the future in front of him. So for God, the future is something concrete. But for a person, the future hasn't taken place yet. So whatever exists in the future really is only in your mind. Do you understand? So that actually is a very empowering thought because that means you have more control over the future than you realize. Because if the future only exists in your mind and it hasn't been brought into the world yet, 
then you're not a prisoner of an event that hasn't taken place yet. <laughs> a lot of people, it's a, it's a new word that I learned, which I, I really, it's a horrible condition, unfortunately, but it's a wonderful word, which is to catastrophize. <laughs> a lot of people catastrophize. What does that mean? They imagine a catastrophe that's coming, and then because their imagination or their fear is so vivid and real, they make that into a reality, and then they start living that reality in the present. Many, many people do this. And, but, but the future doesn't exist yet. The future is just in your mind. So, so why do that? Why make yourself a prisoner of a situation that hasn't occurred yet? I remember when I was in college one time, I walked by this record store and they had a t-shirt in the window and I guess it was a lyric from The Clash and it said, the future is unwritten. And I loved that. And I was like, whoa, that's so good. <laughs> right? So we have to balance these things because we, on some level, we say the future is very much written because we know Mashiach is coming, third base of Migdash is coming, resurrection of the dead is coming. The perfection of the world is coming. But on another level, in terms of our own lives, in terms of how we're going to spend the rest of today, right? That's unwritten. That's unwritten. That's going to be a synthesis between you using your life force and how you integrate the energy that's coming down from heaven at that moment. How are you going to use that? How are you going to interact with that? That is going to be what your future is. You're going to write your future as you continue to live. And it's going to come from you. So what that means is that a person, like Rabbi Nachman says, can begin again at any moment. Since the future hasn't taken place yet, since you are not a prisoner of something that hasn't even occurred, that means that you can begin again. At any moment, you can begin again. And you can start to create the future that you actually want. And you say, well, it's too late. Well, it's not too late. It's not too late. I'm stuck. You only think you're stuck. You're not stuck. So now with this in mind, let's go even further. So there was something that I was always sort of perplexed by, and I, I just learned it, and I'm so glad that I have clarity on this. We know that there, except for a leap year, there are 12 months to the year. And we've talked about it many times, that each month has a different permutation of the yud Vavke, And each month has a different tribe that it's assigned. And each tribe has a different mazel, a different zodiac sign that it's, that it's uh, ascribed. But each month also has a different letter of the olive base. And over the years, I've heard different letters for different months, and I, I was always like perplexed by it. Like, for instance, Tishrei is Lamed. Why is Tishrei Lamed, for goodness sakes, right? Adar is Kuf. Why is Adar, what, what, uh, Nissan is hey. Why is Nissan hey? Like what? 
What, what is the logic behind the assignment of the letters to the months? So, it was finally explained to me. So, it goes like this, which is that there's 22 letters in the Aleph base. And this is from the Sefer Yitzir. There's three primary letters. They're, these are called the mother letters. Okay? And it's Aleph, Mem, and Shin. Okay? So that's one category. The three mother letters. Aleph, Mem, and Shin. Then there are seven letters which are called Kefal, which, are, which means to double. So, for instance, you have Bays and Vays, right? Depending on whether there's a dot in the middle of it. It's the same letter. But depending on whether there's a dot in it, it will be pronounced two different ways. Tough and Saf, right? Like whether you say Shabbos or Shabbat, right? The T at the end, it's the same letter, but whether or not how you pronounce it will vary. So these are called double letters. Pe and Fe, P or F, it's the same letter. So there's seven letters like this, okay? Chaf and Kaf, okay? So we've got the three mother letters, we've got the seven doubled letters, and then there, that leaves seven and three is ten. That leaves twelve other letters. There are twelve other letters which are called the simple letters. There's just, they're not the mother letters, they're not double letters, they're just the simple letters, and those are twelve. And it's from that group of twelve letters that the correlation between the letters and the months are assigned. And then you go in order, starting with the month of Nisan. Everyone knows Nisan is the first month of the year, right? And so the very first letter that isn't a mother letter or a doubled letter is the letter He. So He is for Nisan. And then you go, well, what's the next letter that's not a mother letter or a doubled letter? Of the simple letters. In other words... What it, you're going in order, in chronological order, so to speak, of the simple letters, of the 12 simple letters. Right? So the first one is He, then the next one is Vav, and then Zion, and then He, Te, Yud. Right? Okay? So, and then the next one after that is Lamed, which would correlate with Tishra. Okay? Now, I'll just tell you one thing that I, I found striking which is that um, Tammuz and Av are like sister months, you know, because the three weeks of mourning the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it culminates in Av, but the three weeks starts in Tammuz, right? The um, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the first ninth of Av was when the spies came back from touring the land and they gave their bad report. But when did they leave to start their tour? Rosh Chodesh Tammuz. So you see, and, and, and Tammuz is seeing and Av is hearing. You see many connections between Tammuz and Av. They're really like one, 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 one grouping. Isn't it interesting that the letters assigned to them, Tammuz is Chet and Av is Tet, which spells Chet, which means wrongdoing. Just one, one observation. You know? Anyway, the reason why I'm telling you all this is because I was very struck, getting back to our subject, the letter Yud, right? I was very struck that the letter Yud is for the month of Elul. And we've discussed that in different ways, but we've never discussed it in this context. 
And it's so striking because we said that the letter Yud stands for the future tense, right? And it exists in the realm of thought. Well, isn't it interesting that Elul is coming right before Tishrei, which is the creation of the world? So before you embark on a very big thing, what do you do before you make an action, hopefully? You think about what you're doing. (laughs) So Yud here, you see, correlates with Elul, because this is, so to speak, the divine thought before the creation of the world itself. And then what did we say? That before God created the world, what did he create it out of? The Torah. And what is the essence of the Torah? The Aserah Adibras, the Yud. So here you see the existence, the Yud in Elo before Tishrei, right? The thought before the creation. The Yud stands for the Torah itself. The Aserah Sedibros, which contains the entire Torah, the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah. Here you see another remez, another hint of the existence of the Torah before the creation of the world. So, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe used to say many times, think good and it will be good. And, you know, you know, there's a, a, a famous uh, phrase that people say about Hollywood um, by William Goldman, which is that no one knows anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know, I, I also heard of the name of another great uh, Hollywood personality, should rest in peace, uh, Brandon Tartikoff, who said, every hit is a fluke. Meaning to say that really no one knows actually what's going to work. You know, there's, there's, right now if you're following these things, there's a big movie studio that raised hundreds of millions of dollars called Relativity that just went bankrupt. And the way they were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars is that the head of Relativity presented a formula, a mathematical formula for what makes a hit. He finally broke the code and outsmarted Hollywood, except they just went bigger. (laughs) But it was a convincing enough formula that he was able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is the idea that nobody knows anything, right? So what that means is everyone is looking to each other for cues. And to the extent that you have confidence, you then influence how other people think about your idea or your proposal. Because everyone's looking for cues. I don't know, but you sure seem pretty sure about it, so let's go with it. You're so convinced. What do I know? Right? So let's, all right, let's try it out. And so this is how a person can create, so to speak, their own reality. Because no one knows. No one knows. But if you know, then other people will start to think what you know. You know, there's another example of this, which is, this is just my own kind of thought, which is, 
I was struck by the fact that everyone reports, and so, I mean, it's been said for so many years, I imagine there's something to it, that the number one fear is um, public speaking. That's, that's what I've heard, anyway. People say that. Um, and I was thinking that almost from an evolutionary standpoint, maybe the reason why that's such a fear is because if everyone was a leader, there would be utter chaos. <laughs> If, if you had like 95% of humanity standing up and saying, go this way, and then everyone's going, no, go this way, go this way, you know, and you have a, like a famous story, um, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but you'll get the idea, a conversation between Richard Nixon and Golda Meir, right, which is, um, I forgot how it goes exactly, but it, it's something like this, that, that Richard Nixon said something like, to go to my ear that basically, um, you know, you, you have it easy. You know, we, we have uh, something like whatever America's population was then, 200 and somewhat million people, and you only have 3 million people. Yeah. And she said, no, but you don't understand. We have 3 million prime ministers. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's it's a it's a different situation, but but you you have the ability you have the ability to empower yourself, right through your confidence. To lead. To lead, and that's an opportunity that's given to you, and now you you know you can say on a more practical level, well, how do I do it? How do I do it? How do I appear more confident, even if I'm not more confident? Because all you have to do is to appear more confident. <laughs> you don't actually have to be more confident. You just have to appear more confident. So how can I fake it? Well, you can research that on your own. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll end it here. So anyway, just to wrap it up, don't hide behind the Torah. Do, just have it in your heart and really do the right thing. You have to overcome. You have to do a lot of times what's not so easy. Number two, you can create. You can. The future is unwritten in a very deep way. Don't become a prisoner of a reality that doesn't exist. Number two, that means that you can create your own reality to a certain extent by being confident. Okay.